here's what we see within the story. We see that initially they don't take the Ark of the Lord with them. They just go out and fight against the Philistines. And 4,000 of their men fall. They lose the battle. And then they come back with their tail between their legs and they say, why didn't the Lord protect us? Why didn't the Lord go before us? Why didn't he give us the victory? Here's what we gotta do. Let's take the Ark of the Lord, bring it into camp with us, and then the Lord will bless us. Then God has to bless us. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The story of King David is a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. His life and faith journey point us to Christ, who is the promised king that would surpass David and save his people. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning. My name is Yolanda Erickson. My husband, Brent, and I have been at Gateway for 12 years. The text for today is 1 Samuel chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We are doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. 
But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. This is the word of the Lord. One of the vital elements of the Christian faith is how we relate to God and how God relates to us. See, every religion on the planet has uh, some god or gods that you are supposed to worship. It has a series of rules or obligations that you are meant to follow. And then it has hoops that you need to jump through in order to attain heaven or nirvana or some sort of afterlife. All religions are similar in these ways. And yet Christianity is different in that it is the only one that has the audacity to say that the one true God, the creator of the universe, has the audacity to stoop down and to dwell with us. You think of what the psalmist says. The psalmist tells us, who am I that you are mindful of me, God, the son of man that you care for me at all? And then John, the author of the gospel of John, he says this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his, do you know what the word is? His glory. We've beheld his glory. So here's the question I want you to think about as we look at these texts today. What does it look like for us to behold the glory of God? How has God called us to draw near to him? And how does God draw near to us? And everything that we're going to be looking at today has to do with the glory of God. How we behold the glory of God. So last week, we saw that the temple priesthood was morally bankrupt, right? We saw Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of the high priest Eli, and they were misusing funds from the temple. They were misusing sacrifices that were meant to be given toward God, but they would eat the fat and then burn the lean meat. And then also they were using the tabernacle as a brothel. They were morally bankrupt. So God provides a new leader, a better leader in Samuel, and then Samuel is given this really difficult assignment where he has to go to Eli, his mentor, his father figure, if you will, and he has to tell him, your family name is about to be no more. Hophni and Phinehas are going to die. And the Ark of the Lord is going to be taken by the Philistines. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. So if you have your Bibles, I want us to look at this again. 1 Samuel chapter 4, starting at verse 1. I want to read the first four verses with you. It says this. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel, they asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? So... Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, 
were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So it's really interesting here what Israel does. If you've been following along in this series, you'll notice that the actions of Israel are very similar to things that we've already seen before. It's like an episode of Seinfeld. It's exactly the same story, just a different episode, right? Exactly the same story. And so here's the very first way that we see how we treat God. I put it this way in your note sheet. We believe in God, but we act like he doesn't exist. We believe in God, but we act like he doesn't exist. And so here's what we see within the story. We see that initially they don't take the ark of the Lord with them. They just go out and fight against the Philistines. And 4,000 of their men fall. They lose the battle. And then they come back with their tail between their legs and they say, why didn't the Lord protect us? Why didn't the Lord go before us? Why didn't he give us the victory? And then presumably someone in the ranks said, hey, do you remember the time when all of our forefathers, they brought the ark of the Lord before Jericho and they walked around the walls and then they went do 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 and everything fell down? Or do you remember the time when our forefathers took the ark of the Lord just before the Jordan River? They needed to cross it and the priests took the ark of the Lord, they stepped in the water, it parted like the Red Sea and we walked through on dry ground. Do you remember that? Here's what we got to do. Let's take the ark of the Lord, bring it into camp with us, and then the Lord will bless us. Then God has to bless us. Now that should be familiar to you. The very first week of this series, I shared with you a story about a man named Micah and his mother. And they said something very similar. They had a little shrine of God right? Then they found a priest. They hired the priest to be their own little personal priest. And then Micah said this, Judges 17, now I know the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. In other words, now God has to bless me. God has to bless me now. Look, I got a priest. God has to bless me now. Look, I'm doing these religious activities. God has to bless me now. Look, we got the ark of the Lord in the camp. Certainly we're going to win this war because God has to bless us. And so that reveals the second way that we are tempted to treat God. And it goes a little bit like this. We use God rather than worship him. And we are convinced that God can be bought. He can be co-opted for our purposes rather than his. And we look at the story, and one thing that I find really interesting is the first time they go out into battle, they lose 4,000 men. But the second time they go out into battle with the ark of the Lord, surely the Lord is with us now. Surely the Lord will bless us. Surely we will get the victory. And they get dominated. 30 thousand of their men are destroyed on that day. The worst defeat in Israel's history up to this point. Now that's curious because they have the ark of the Lord there. Don't you think that God would bless them then? But here's the problem, friends. They are treating God like their cosmic consultant. They're treating God like a waiter. A waiter isn't someone who sits with you who abides with you. A waiter is someone who waits on your beck and call. 
Waiter, bring me more water. Refill my cup. Bring me my meal. Bring me my dessert. Bring back the menu. Bring me my bill. Better yet, don't bring the bill. We're treating God like a waiter. And Israel is doing the same thing. They are using God rather than worshiping him. Do you see the difference? And so it's the same principle revisited. And not surprisingly, it ends the way that it does. 4,000 men lost the first time. 30,000 men lost the second time because they're seeking to co-opt God. And here's what I find so ironic about this. Look at your Bibles again, if you have them. And pick up with me at verse 5. Look at the response of the Philistines. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all of Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all the shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. Hmm. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of this mighty God? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. In other words, the Philistines have greater fear of God than Israel does. A greater fear of the Lord than God's people. They have a greater theology of the glory of God than his own people. They know when to shudder when God shows up. So, verses 1 and 2, Israel goes into battle without the Ark of the Covenant, they lose. Verses 10 and 11, Israel goes into battle with the Ark of the Covenant, and they lose, but they lose 10 times the amount of men. Either way, they lose because God cannot be bought. God cannot be bought. So then here's what happens next. A young messenger, he runs all the way back to Israel to tell Eli what has happened. Uh, let's pick up at verse 17 here. Eli, he's 98 years old, and the messenger comes back to him. Eli says, what happened, my son? The messenger says this. Israel fled before the Philistines. The, armor, the, the army suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and he was heavy. Why kick a man while he's down? My goodness, we'll come back to that. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard this news that the ark of God had been captured and her father-in-law and husband were dead, she went into labor and she gave birth, but she was overcome by her labor pains. And she was dying. as she was dying, the women attending her said, Do not despair, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ich-Kabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Do you remember that question that I started with today? The question was this, What does it mean for us to behold the glory of God? How are we called to draw near to God? And how does God draw near to us? And it has everything to do with God's 
glory. And as English readers, I think we just missed something, which is the plain main thing of this text that the author of Samuel wants everyone to understand, but because of the way it's translated, we sometimes miss it. And so the word glory, every single time that you see it in your Bible, it's translated in a number of different ways. It's really hard to translate. So I was trying to think of a, a similar example. And then as I was leaving my house one day, I saw a big sign. My wife Julie made it. It says, Chazelig, or Gazelig, or however you say that. Now, for those of you who are Dutch speakers, what does that word mean? Does it mean peace in times of trouble? Does it mean cozy? That's what my wife thinks. Like a hundred blankets, a toque, a mug of coffee, and a hundred degrees in the house Fahrenheit. That's Hazelig to her. That's like a sweat box to me, but that's Hazelig, right? Or is it something like coziness, peace, harmony? What is it? It's kind of all those things. And if you've been raised up in the Dutch tradition, you know the essence of the word, but it might be hard to translate in English. Kabod is the same thing. Exactly the same thing. So in your Bibles, it's translated almost exclusively in one of three ways. It's translated as weight, as glory, and as light. Weight, glory, light. And interestingly, it's used all three ways in the book of Samuel. So let me just give three examples of this. First is Samuel 3. This is the story where Eli, he's sleeping in his own place. But Samuel, he is sleeping in the tent of God, in the tabernacle next to um, the Ark of the Covenant. And it says the light or the lamp had not yet gone out. The kabod of God had not yet gone out. The, the second example that we see of this is in the text that I just read to you where we discover that Phineas's wife, when she discovers that her father-in-law and her brother-in-law and her husband are all dead, she goes into labor, and then she names her own son, Ich Kabod, which means, where is the glory of God? Where is the light of God? Where is the weight of God? And then the third story is the story of dear Eli. And he has just discovered that the ark of the Lord is gone and he falls down on his neck and he dies. But the author goes the extra mile. Kind of sounds like he's kicking a horse while he's down. And he says something really interesting. He says, and he was, what's the word? Heavy. He was heavy. Do you know what that word is? It's kabod. It's kabod. Now, why is, why is he mentioning his weight during this time? Well, the author wants you to see something here that we often miss. It goes like this. Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, the rest of Israel, they have all despised God, all the while convincing themselves that they haven't, that they're worshiping God. They're sacrificing to God. They're giving to God what he is worthy of, but they're not. They're co-opting God. They're treating him like a cosmic consultant in order to bless their own lives. Not to make much of the Lord, but to make much of themselves. And so that's the way it goes. And we see here that uh, Hophni and Phinehas, they decide to eat the fat 
of the sacrifice before it's given to the Lord. And so here's the plain main thing. Let me read this to you. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 29. Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people? And so what God is saying to Hophni and to Phinehas and to Eli is you have taken my glory and quite literally in the case of Eli, you've put it around your waist. You've put it around your waist. You've usurped my glory and you've given it to yourself. You've taken my glory and you've established your own little mini kingdom over and against mine. So here's the plain main thing, friends. You cannot rob God of his glory. You can't rob God of his glory. In this particular instance, the fat of the sacrifice belonged to God. And the meat belonged to the priests. And this again, we've talked about this before. This is the the first fruits principle. Are you giving your first and your best to God? Or are you giving God your leftovers? Are you taking care of yourself, making sure everything else is taken care of, and then giving him what remains? Or are you giving God the best of your life, your finances, your energy, your effort, your gifts, your life? Are you giving those things to the Lord? Are you seeking the advancement of God's kingdom, his glory, his light, his strength, his power? Or are you doing it for yourself? Which one have you chosen? And last week I shared with you the passage of uh, Romans chapter 12 verse 1. But the message version from Eugene Peterson, it goes like this. So Paul says, here's what I want you to do, God helping you, take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. So here's the point. The sacrifice that belongs to the Lord is your life. All of your life. Everything that is your life belongs to the Lord. So here's the question that you have to ask. Are you your own and belong to yourself? Or are you not your own and you belong to God? Which of the two is true for you by virtue of your actions and your behavior? Only you can answer that question. I can only show you what's in the text, but then you have to take it from here with a mirror in front of you and to say, how am I living my life today? Am I walking with God or am I walking in my own ways? So here's where the story continues. It's the same thing, theme, different story again. It's all about the glory of God. The Philistines, they take 30,000 men. They kill them. They kill Hophni and Phinehas. They take the Ark of the Lord. And what's so significant about that? I shared this with you already. The Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord, is the place where the kabod, the glory of God, dwells. And this is the first time in Scripture in which God allows another nation to take the Ark from Israel. They have it. And where do they put it? They, they bring it back to one of their cities and they put it in the temple of Dagon, one of their gods. Kind of like a trophy case. It's indicating our God is stronger than your God. Our military efforts are stronger than your military efforts. And there he stays. And then what ensues after this is a series of, if not humorous, then terribly sad sequences of events. So pick up with me. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 3, it says this. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, 
fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and they put him back in his place. So presumably they're thinking, oh, if I get my hands on those rambunctious teenagers who push this over, right? They're just thinking maybe it's a coincidence. So they put Dagon back up in his place. Everything's fine. He won't fall down again, but here's the next verse. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and they were lying on the threshold and only his body remained. And the priests knew exactly what that meant. The head represents the wisdom of their gods. The hands represent the power of their gods and they've all been ripped off. In other words, your God is totally incompetent. He's totally foolish and impotent. You think of the psalmist when, he, when the psalmist says, they have eyes but they do not see. They have hands but they cannot move. They have feet but they cannot move. They have tongues but they cannot speak. These are the gods that you are worshiping. They are not real. God cannot be mocked. God cannot be mocked. And so here's the way I put it in your note sheet. Before God, all other gods must fall. All other gods must fall. So let me show you what happens in the story over the next two chapters in blazing speed. I actually think there's different things you can learn when you go quickly through a sequence like this. You make connections that you might not otherwise make. So what ends up happening is the people think to themselves, maybe it is still just vandalism, right? Maybe someone just knocked it over. That's what happened. But at exactly the same time, a terrible plague breaks out and hundreds of people die. People are dying in droves. And now they want the ark of the Lord out of their city. Here's what we read, chapter 5, verse 6. The, Lord hand, the Lord's hand was, what's the word? Help me. Heavy. That's kabod. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them. He afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. You cannot rob God of his glory. You can't rob God of his glory. And so here's what they say. They say, here's what we got to do. We have to take the ark of the covenant and send it to another Philistine city. Let's send it to Gath. And then they send it to Gath, and exactly the same thing happens. We see tumors, and we see death. And now they're afraid. They see this as like some sort of disease-making machine. They don't want anything to do with this. So the Philistines play a game of hot potato with the ark of God. I don't want it, I don't want it, I don't want it, I don't want it. They send it to Ashdod, they send it to Gath, they send it to Ekron. But once they get to Ekron, here's what happens. They say, uh, we've heard about what happened to Dagon, we've heard about the tumors, we've heard about the death, no thanks. You can have it. We're not interested in having that here. They go as far to say to their own countrymen, they're bringing the ark of God of Israel to kill us, for God's hand was heavy kabod upon it. And then a riot breaks out. We don't want it. So then the Philistines, they get together and they think to themselves, maybe it is just a coincidence that Dagon fell over twice, that there's all these plagues and all this death. Maybe it's a coincidence. So they want to test the hypothesis. 
So they take a little cart, they put the ark of God on the cart, and they hitch it to two cows who just calved, who just gave birth. And they say to themselves, if God is in this, then these two cows, they're not going to follow their natural instincts. They're going to turn, the word we use for repentance, they're going to turn and make a beeline for Israel. But if natural events occur, they're just going to walk back to their calves. And then we'll know whether or not God is in this. So they take the two cows, they take the hitch, they attach it, and instantly these two cows turn around and they go back to Israel to Beth Shemesh. And they say, certainly God is in this. So you would assume by now, that's the end of the story. The ark of God is now back in Israel. Everything's fine. Everything's okay. Nope. Things go from bad to worse. They make it all the way back to Beth Shemesh, and the Israelites say, awesome, the ark of God is back. This is so cool. They start to have a big party, and then some people in Israel, they say, you know, I've never seen inside the ark of God. I'm curious to see what's inside. Apparently, there's some manna still in there. It's been preserved. Apparently, the, the uh, two articles of the law are in there. There's lots of cool things, like we should open it up and see what's inside. But here's what happens when they do that. The Lord struck them, Scripture says, at Beth Shemesh, and 70 of them died. And then the whole sequence ends this way, chapter 6, verse 20, if your Bibles are open. They say, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? What a question. Who can stand before the glory of God? Who can stand before the weight and the presence and the light of God? It's very similar to a question that we heard only a couple weeks earlier from Eli when he said, if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? When the weight of the kabod, the glory of God, presses down on you, can you stand? Who here in this room can stand in the presence of our holy God? Think of the story of Moses at the burning bush Right? And then the story where Moses says, I want to behold, behold your kabod, your glory. God says, nope, not doing that. But I'll hide you behind the cleft of a rock, a tiny little cleft, and I will walk by and you will see my hind parts, Scripture says. And even from that experience, he has the residual effects of the kabod, the light, the glory of God, and he is beaming like a light bulb for days because of his very brief encounter with the kabod of God. Who amongst us can stand in the presence of the holiness of God? That's the question. And that's the question where I want to spend the remainder of our time this morning. In the presence of our holy God, how can any of us stand? Now let me show you how this story, at least these couple of chapters here, ends. If you have your Bibles, look at chapter 7, starting at verse 2. It says, then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. That's repentance. So Samuel said to all of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all of your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and their ashtoreths, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, assemble at Israel at Mitzpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. 
When they had assembled at Mitzpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And on that day, they fasted and they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. So what do we see of Israel in these few short verses? I think there's three things here that we can learn from them and then we can choose to put on in our own lives today. Two times we see in verse 2 that Israel turned or returned. That word is repentance. Israel repented. See, there's a difference between confession and repentance. Confession is to say, I'm sorry for my sin. There are some Christians who might even say, I'm not really sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for the effects of my sin and how it impacts my life and people around me. But repentance is confession plus. It's, I'm sorry for my sin, but I resolve today to make a U-turn and to say, I was going north, I'm going south. I was going east, I'm going west. I am turning around and devoting myself to the Lord. I used to be interested in the glorification of myself. Now I'm interested in the glorification of God. That's repentance. That's repentance. It is a behavioral modification. So you've been looking at these two ladders, wondering to yourself, what's all that about? Well, look no further. This past week, um, I, I saw that my pastor when I was in seminary, Paul DeVries, he used a metaphor like this, and I just thought to myself, that is so applicable to what we're looking at in our story today. So here's what it is. On my left, this represents the kabod of the self. The kabod of the self is every time you decide to do what is right in your own eyes. It's every time you see Eli and Hophni and Phinehas taking the kabod, the glory of God, and putting it around their waist. It is every time you see Israel, who's not really interested in having a personal relationship with Jesus. They're just interested in co-opting God, which is why they take the ark of, the God, the ark of God and they bring it into battle with them. It's every single time you decide, you know what? I'm, I'm more interested in treating the word of God as practical advice, but I can take it or leave it, whether I think that's real or true or trustworthy. It's every single time you say to yourself, I'm not really interested in the glorification of God, making much of God, the kabod of God. I'm more interested in my own little kingdom over here. This is where I'd like to live my life. This represents the kabod of self. The glorification of self, the worship of self. I'm the most important person in my life. This represents the kabod of God. This is every single time you decide you want to make much of Jesus. It's every time you, like in the book of Romans chapter 12, you take your everyday, normal, walking around, eating, sleeping, working life, and you place it before God as an offering, and you say, Lord, I want to make much of you. I want to worship you. I want to give you my whole life. I want you to work in me. I want you to transform my life. This represents the kabod of God, the glory of God, the light of God, the weight of God. So here's the question that I want to ask you this morning. Where do we typically live our lives on a day-to-day -day basis? 
I'll tell you. Right here. We want to have our cake and eat it too. We want one foot in the world glorifying ourselves and one foot with God making much of Jesus. So here's what it might look like on a practical scale. You might, on Sunday, say, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to worship God. I'm going to make much of Jesus. I'm going to hear a message from a pastor who's going to put his life in danger for our sake. I'm going to hear how we can sing and praise God and worship God and follow God Monday through Saturday. And I'm going to raise a voice to worship God. But then Monday hits. And then we say, we decided we went out for coffee with some friends and maybe some family members. And we used that same tongue that we used on Sunday to make much of Jesus to talk about other people, to gossip or to slander those people who are made in the image and the likeness of God. Then Tuesday comes along. And we go to life groups. And we open up our Bibles. And we roll up our sleeves. And we say, what does it look like, practically speaking, to make much of Jesus in my marriage, in my singleness, in my parenting, in my finances, in my life? I want to learn how to do this better. God, use me. And then... Wednesday comes along, and we watch something we really know we shouldn't watch. We engage in something we know we shouldn't engage with. And on and on and on and on it goes. Are you scared? Can I tell you something? You should be. Because a lot of you are living your lives just like this. One foot in the world and one foot following Jesus. And truth be told, some of you, you might be more spiritually flexible than I am. You might be able to get up a few more notches, but eventually you're going to have to make a choice. And here's the thing that grieves me, friends. Every Christian is the person who says, I want to experience the transformation of God. I want him to work in my life. I want him to use me for his kingdom purposes. I want to worship him. I want to get higher up this ladder to experience the presence of God. But you're never going to get there if you got one foot in the world. One foot devoted to yourself. Sooner or later, you're going to have to make a choice. Do you want the kabod of God or do you want the kabod of self? Maybe, just maybe, you make the choice where you say, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. I'm going to follow my own truth. I'm going to build my own little mini kingdom over and against his. Or you are going to make a decision. Isn't that fun? To follow him. But here's the thing that I want you to see, friends. Going back to this little image where we are teetering between two worlds. Some of you have been worshiping God for five years, for 10 years, for 20 years, for 30 years. And you're starting to ask yourself questions like, God, where's the transformation? Where's the life change? Where's the sanctification where I'm looking and acting more like Jesus? Here's my question to you. Is it possible this is the reason why? 
Is it possible the reason why you're not experiencing this sort of life transformation is because you still have a foot in the world? And the only way that you are going to experience everything that God promises is if you lift your foot and you're totally devoted to him. Because I'm telling you, if I tried to lift my leg out from here, it's not going to work so well. If you choose repentance, number two in your note sheet, here's what's going to happen next. You are going to worship God. You are going to make much of Jesus. Look at the actions and the behaviors of Israel before the Ark of the Covenant was stolen and after it comes back. First, they turn. That's repentance. That's confession. That's turning around. And second, they worship. That is making much of Jesus. And I've shared with you before, you should worship whatever God you want. Just make sure he's worthy of your worship. And to the extent that he is worthy, you should worship him no more and no less. If God is truly worthy of your worship, then we should be willing to take our foot off the kabod of self and to fully commit to the kabod of God. And that leads to the third and the final point that we see in the story, which I find quite compelling, and it is sacrifice. Sacrifice. There's two elements of sacrifice here. We see that Israel is obviously making a sacrifice, but there's something deeper and more profound that's happening in the story as well. I shared with you already Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is your true worship, that you would sacrifice for God. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed with the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So here's the question I want to ask you. What would compel you to live your life like this and not like this? What would compel your unchurched and unbelieving neighbors and family members and friends and co-workers and classmates to take their feet off of this and to be totally committed to this. I'm telling you, it's not going to be rules and regulations. It's not going to be religion. None of those things are going to be compelling to them. Were they compelling to you? No, there's only one way that they would be compelled to put both feet on this. And we see it in our story. 1 Samuel chapter 7, starting at verse 9, we see that at the end of the story, the Philistines, they come back to attack Israel, but then Samuel steps in and he intercedes for them. It says this, Samuel took a suckling lamb and he sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf and the Lord answered him. And I hope you see now, friends, I hope you have the eyes to see what is happening in this story. The lamb was sacrificed and died in their place. And on the other side of the resurrection and death of Jesus, hopefully we have the eyes to see what this story is pointing to. Years later, there would be another man 
who, like Samuel, was from the tribe of Levi. His mother was also barren. He was also dedicated and raised at the house of God. He also made a Nazarite vow. He was also a prophet of God in Israel. All of those things exactly the same. His name was John the Baptist. And in a similar environment, he's standing out in the wilderness before the people of God. But the only difference between these two stories is John the Baptist did not have a suckling lamb. Instead, he told the whole assembly there, he said, Behold, pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't you see 1 Samuel 4, 5, 6, and 7? They're just a, a subplot to a far greater story of Scripture that Jesus is the suckling lamb for us. That even when he was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. And now we see Jesus for who he truly is. What would compel us to walk up this ladder? If we see the cross of Christ and what he did for us. Consider the words of Romans. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says these words, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the what? Help me out. The glory of God. The glory of God. Grace, grace. God's grace, grace that can pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. And in light of what Jesus Christ has done for me, I want to give my whole life to him. It is only in seeing the cross of Christ, the suckling lamb, Jesus the Lamb of God who bore our sin, who bore our shame. Don't you see, friends? Jesus' death on the cross, it didn't only take our sin away, though it did. It also transformed us from selfish people into gracious, loving people who are fully devoted to the Word of God and building up His kingdom for the good of God and for the good of those who love him. Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our series through First and Second Samuel, tracing the life of David, the Shadow King. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.